people have a lot of problems these days. Uh, they can't find herb. Uh, it's very, very difficult to get a light without being run over by a train. And uh, when you have a party and you run your dishes through the dishwasher, they uh, come out with ugly uh, water spots. Woody Allen says that we, we always had these made-up problems to keep our minds off of the real problems in the world. Some of you have some real problems. I know you do. You're struggling in your marriages. Your businesses are going under. You're struggling with your health. You have problems relating to people. Those are the kind of problems that really preoccupy us. There's a man in the Bible who had a problem. His name was Nehemiah. And the way that he went about solving that problem is a lesson to all of us. Will you turn with me to the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah? The first chapter of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. That's the part of the Bible that we seldom uh, read. If you're like most people, you open your Bible and it will naturally open up to the book of Psalms. That's the only part of the Old Testament that uh, is much used. So if that's, uh, if that's true in your case, uh, if you're a little bit too far to the right, you want to go two books to the left, to the book of Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and then Psalms. Now, I, I want to give you a little bit of background to this book, because we'll be talking about it for the next few weeks. Now, I have to be careful. Carolyn says I have a tendency to get historical at times. I, I go to seed on this subject. I'm very much interested in history, and I don't want to overdo it, but I want you to understand something of the historical, cultural context of this book, because it's so different from our, uh, from our culture. And from our times, we need to understand the setting of the book. It was written at one of the most important periods of history, during the, the golden age of Greece. This, this was the age of men like Sophocles and Socrates and Herodotus and Pericles and people whose names are very, very familiar to us. This was the time of the Peloponnesian War, that is, the war between Athens and, and Sparta. The whole world was looking at Greece. But the most important thing, the most significant thing that was happening in history was not happening in Greece at all. It was happening in a little backwater town, backwater in terms of, of, of the historic trends of that day, the little town of Jerusalem, where a few Jews were trying to rebuild their wall. Now, let me explain what happened. About 140 years before Nehemiah wrote, the Babylonians sacked and burned the city of Jerusalem. They besieged the city. It underwent a long siege. They literally starved the Jews out of the city. They eventually broke through the walls, burned the city, destroyed the temple, and deported most of the population of the city. Jeremiah says the only Judeans that were left were bad figs. We would say bad apples today. The lower uh, classes, the criminal types, they, they were left behind. But the leadership, the wealthy, the influential people were all deported out of Judea to Babylon. All of this happened in the year 586 B.C., about 140 years before Nehemiah wrote. 
These Jews were in Babylon and then in Persia because the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians. They were in Persia for about 70 years. And then they began to return. The Jews today speak of what they call the Aliyah, which is the Hebrew word for going up. They were going up to Jerusalem out of Babylon. They went in successive waves, first under a man that we don't know much about, who's not well known, his name is Zerubbabel, and then a little bit later under the leadership of another man we do know a great deal about, his name was Ezra. Ezra wrote a book about the Aliyah, about the return, the immigration of the Jews back back to their land, and it's the book Ezra in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Ezra probably wrote the books of First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah, he incorporated Nehemiah's memoirs, his own remembrances of this period, because there's a first-person section of, of Nehemiah from chapter 1 through chapter 7 that Ezra just included, but it's, it's, it's out of Nehemiah's diary. Ezra was the, was the historian of this period. He, he talked about the return. They came back and they rebuilt the temple and they appointed new priests and uh, they began to worship again in Jerusalem, and they rebuilt their houses. And then they began to rebuild the wall, which is the sort of thing that you did in those days to protect yourself from invaders. Time again and again, the project was shut down. The governors of the, the Persian provinces around Jerusalem were threatened by these Judeans rebuilding the walls of their city, and so they would send letters off to the Persian kings, and the Persian king would issue an edict which would shut the whole project down. Now, just prior to the writing of the book of Nehemiah are the events that are covered in, in Nehemiah's memoirs. Artaxerxes I, who was the king of this period, had issued just such a mandate. He had prohibited any further uh, rebuilding of the walls. And that was the situation as we began to read the book of Nehemiah. Now will you turn to it? Nehemiah 1. I have an advantage over you because I found it before and put a little ribbon in there so I could find it. The words are the history of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Uh, originally, Ezra and Nehemiah was one book. If you pick up a Hebrew Bible, a Jewish Bible today, and you look at the book of Nehemiah, you'll discover that it's really a part of the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. But at this point, Nehemiah's diary comes into play. Ezra begins to report verbatim from Nehemiah's memoirs. And uh, so these are the words or the histories of Nehemiah. This is to alert us that we're now turning to what Nehemiah actually saw and did. He was an eyewitness of this period. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. We really don't know much about Nehemiah. He uh, it was a very common name, as common as the name Bob Smith is today. It, it occurs in a lot of extra-biblical literature. It occurs several times in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there's another Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah, who's not the Nehemiah who wrote the book at all. And so Ezra tells us that these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. But we don't know who Hakaliah is, so that doesn't help us a great deal, except it distinguishes this Nehemiah from any other Nehemiah. Now, uh, he tells us that all of this occurred in the month of Kislev, which is last month. Kislev is, the, is a month in the Jewish calendar, the month of December. So these events happened in December, but we're told that, that, uh, that, this, uh, that this history began 
in the 20th year, which would be the 20th year of Artaxerxes I, which enables us to date these events at precisely 445 B.C. So we know we're talking about Artaxerxes I. He was the reigning monarch of Persia, and this happened in the year 445 B.C. Now, Nehemiah tells us that when all of these things happened, he was in the citadel of Susa. Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire. It's in modern-day Iran. corresponds to our Washington, D.C. It's, it's where things were happening. It was the center of, of the history of the Persian period. And uh, we're not told at this point what he was doing there. All we know is that's where he lived and worked. That's where Daniel saw his vision in Daniel 8. That's where the palace intrigues reported in the book of Esther took place there in the citadel at Susa. And that's where Nehemiah worked and, and lived. And at this point, that's all we know. We don't know what he did there. We're simply told he lived there. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Hananiah was probably his blood brother, his real brother. Sometimes that expression refers to someone who's merely a kinsman, another Jew. But the way the text puts it makes it fairly clear that Hananiah was Nehemiah's actual blood brother. We know from other writings that he was, uh, he was the provincial uh, head of the city of Jerusalem, and he led a delegation from Jerusalem to Susa, apparently, to have an audience with the king. But on the way to the king, he dropped off to see his brother, Nehemiah, and Nehemiah asked him about the plight of the Jews in the city and the condition of the wall, because Nehemiah loved Jerusalem. Every Jew loves Jerusalem. They still do today. They have a heart for Zion. Psalms, uh, one of the Psalms tells uh, them to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was concerned about his city, and so he asks about it. They, they said to me, those who survived the exile, that is, those who had immigrated back to Jerusalem, and are back in the province are in great trouble and, and disgrace. Things are, are very bad back there, they tell uh, Nehemiah, because the wall of Jerusalem is still, that's the idea, still broken down. And its gates have been burned with fire. It was 140 years since the city had been destroyed and the walls were still unbuilt. Though there had been a number of attempts to rebuild the walls, every time they tried, the attempts were aborted by the Persian kings, the whole project was shut down, and the city was still lying defenseless. When I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept. His heart was involved in the city and the people there. I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now the first thing you have to do when you face a problem is to realize that you've got a problem. Most of us are a little bit like Alfred Newman, you know, the fellow with the smile who says, Worry? Me? Worry? Problem? What problem? I don't see any problems. Our wives come to us and they say, the kids are a mess. And we say, what? I don't see any problem. Or our wives come to us and they say, dear, I think we've got a real problem in our marriage. And we say, problem? What problem? 
We don't want to be bothered with problems. I've got enough problems down at the office. But we need to listen and we need to be aware and we need to discover where there are problems and take these problems seriously. A couple of summers ago, Carolyn awakened in the middle of the night. She has this penchant for wanting to talk things over about 2 o'clock in the morning. That's when her mind is operative. It's working in high gear. It works other times, but it works at 2 o'clock in the morning. And so she says to me, uh, Honey, I hear water running. I said, I don't know the water is running. And I hear water running. I think we got a problem. No, nah, there's no water running. I think the sprinklers are still on in the backyard. No, 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 the sprinklers are off. I checked before I went to bed. We don't have a problem. Go back to sleep. No, you know, I, I think. I hear water running. No, there's no problem. The next morning I got up and I went down to the basement and we had a problem. <laughs> I had left the hose on all night and it ran down into the, the window well into our uh, basement and I had what I've always wanted, an indoor swimming pool. <laughs> About six inches of water in our basement. We had a problem. I wouldn't listen. We need to listen. We need to be aware. That's the first step. Be aware of the problem. The second step is to get involved. Our tendency is to think that problems will go away by themselves. The problem will heal itself if we just leave it alone. But problems very rarely solve themselves. At least in my experience, they don't. The only way to solve a problem is to solve the problem. Nehemiah knew that he had to get involved. He couldn't blame the people in Jerusalem. He didn't yell at the delegation and say, what in the world are you guys doing over there? Why aren't you rebuilding the wall? He realized that he had to personally get involved. His heart was already involved. He wept over Jerusalem. But he realized he needed to go into action. He needed to do something about the problem. That's the second thing you need to do. Face into the problem. Not avoid it, not try to blame someone else, not expect someone else to take the responsibility, but ask yourself, what must I do to get personally involved? And take whatever action is necessary to resolve the problem. But the interesting thing is that what Nehemiah did was to do nothing for four months but pray. That's all he did. Now you're talking about a man of action. Nehemiah was a go-for-broke leader. His philosophy of life was ready, fire, aim. You know, he, he, he was ready to go. He wouldn't take no for a negative. He was one of the most inventive, uh, uh, innovative fellows you can possibly meet. He was the kind of man that, that, that did something about problems. But he didn't do anything for four months but pray. And what follows is one of his sample prayers. Now, I don't think he prayed the same prayer over and over again. But what we have here in Nehemiah's own uh, uh, autobiography is uh, a sample prayer. This is the way he prayed. And this, this prayer teaches us something about prayer. It shows us the elements of proper prayer. Now, listen to the prayer. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction. The word means both threat and warning. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. These are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Prayer is a a mystery, I think, to most, most of us. We just don't understand how it works. But I am more and more convinced That prayer is one of the means by which God aligns us to his purposes. Proper prayer, then, makes us think God's thoughts after him. Prayer is not so much talking to God as it is learning from him. Very often when you're talking to God, you're really talking to yourself. Not that it goes no further than yourself, but you're really teaching yourself about God as you pray. And every prayer in the Bible has that that, uh, characteristic. Uh, Carolyn and I were uh, over at Randy and Jenny's house last week visiting our uh, grandchildren. Josh was along, and uh, Melanie, our two-year-old granddaughter, does not like to go from the living room to her bedroom because she has to go down a long, dark hall, and it scares her. There are moo-moos in the dark. Now, uh, uh, a moo-moo is a ghost. Her mother is Filipino, and and Melanie has learned a few Tagalog words, and so to her a ghost is a moo-moo. So uh, she, she came in, she got her Uncle Josh, and they went down the hall. She was holding on to Josh's hand, and as they made their way down the hall, she said to Josh, Josh, no moo-moo, no moo-moo, Josh. Now, I knew very well that she was not talking to Josh. She was talking to herself. Josh isn't afraid of moo-moos. But just telling her, her uncle that there were no moo-moos in the hall was a real comfort to her. She was talking to herself while she was talking to Randy. Now, I think that's the character of this prayer. It's the nature of it. The first thing he does is remind himself of God's character. He centers on God. Oh, Lord God of heaven, that great and awesome God. Who could be afraid of a human monarch, a mere man, when he has access to the God of heaven, the king of the universe, a great and awesome God who loves us, he says, and who never lies to us. If God has promised to love us, he will love us to the end. That's the point that Nehemiah is making. You see, instead of centering on the problem and brooding over it and wringing his hands and pacing the floor and continuing to weep over the problem, he was centering upon God. 
That's what prayer does. It takes the problem to God. It rolls the anxiety that's caused by the problem on to God. As Paul puts it, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything, he says. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Once you understand who God is, then you can put your problems in his hands and then you stop worrying over the problem. It still comes back to you. You still have to face it again and again. And this prayer may have to be repeated every hour on the hour or even more frequently. But what prayer does is get your eyes off the problem and get them onto the problem solver. The second thing that Nehemiah does in his prayer is take a good hard look at himself. Prayer not only focuses him on God and helps him to see God in a new way, but it helps him to see himself. You notice what he does? He implicates himself in the sins of his people. He he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. It was his fathers that sent the nation into exile. It's because of their rebellion that they, that they were forced out of the land. But, but Nehemiah recognizes the same tendency in himself. Had he lived during that time, he would have done the same things. And he sees the same uh, sinful character in, in his own being. And he realizes that he's responsible just as much as others are. So that's another thing that prayer does for you. It helps you to see yourself realistically as well as see God realistically. And seeing yourself is often the first step. is the next step, rather, in solving the problem. Because when we're part of the problem, we can't be part of the solution. My tendency is to blame everyone else for the problem. I don't know about you, but I'm the last person to accept the blame for the problem. Somebody else did it. And as I said, Nehemiah did not shout at the delegation. Why didn't you guys do something about the situation over there? What's the matter with you all? He recognizes that he is part of the problem and he accepts responsibility for it. Jesus said that's the key to working out any personal relationship that's fractured. Get the log out of your eye first, he said. Then you can see to get the the little speck of dust, little piece of sawdust out out of the other person's eye. Two things to say about that teaching. The first is that Jesus makes it very clear that the larger problem very often lies with us, though we may not see it. We have a log in our eye in contrast to the speck in the other person's eye. The second thing is that we really cannot see clearly to help another person until we deal with our own sin first. We have to get the log out. If we don't, we do more harm than good. So we have to start with ourselves. That's what Nehemiah does. He says, what, what, did I, what have I done to contribute to the problem? And he accepts responsibility for it. He judges himself before he judges the other. So he centers on God. He looks at God as he really is. And he looks at himself as he is. And then he makes a strange request. He asks God to remember as though God ever forgot. He he reminds himself, really, of the truth. He doesn't need to remind God. God never forgets. He's reminding himself of the promise that God made. Both the threat and the promise. Remember, he says, the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you. 
But if you return to me, you repent and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. This, uh, uh, Nehemiah is alluding to what Old Testament theologians call the Palestinian Covenant. Israel was told that if they were faithful to the Lord, if they loved him with all of their heart, then he would guarantee their existence in the land. But if they rebelled, then they would be exiled. It was all prophesied, and it came true. They rebelled, they brought in idolatry, and they were cast out of the land. God is faithful to his promises. Now Nehemiah says, we can see your faithfulness to the, to, to the promise to exile us, but now we've done what you told us to do. We've repented. We've returned to you. Now you must be faithful to your promise to guard us and protect us because you've promised we're still your people. The Palestinian covenant did not, uh, that, uh, that, that uh, threat that they would be cast out of the land did not mean that they would be cast out of his presence. They never lost their relationship to God. They simply lost their right to live in the land because Nehemiah refers to Israel as your servants, your people. They were still his people, though they were in disobedience and outside of the land. Nehemiah says, now we've repented, we've come back to you. You must be faithful to your promise. Your name is at stake. Your reputation is at stake. As my kids used to say to me, Dad, you promised. And that's what Nehemiah says. Father, you promised that you'd take care of us if we did what was right. Now we're doing what is right. You have to be, tr- you have to be true and faithful to your word. And then he prays this prayer. The petition comes at the very end. It's very brief. It's very simple. Give your servant success today. By granting him favor in the presence of this man. How many of you saw Alvin Haynes praying for success two weeks ago? Down on his knees, on the sidelines, praying for for a Raider victory. That's one kind of success. The camera actually panned on to Haynes. He was on his knees with his hands up like this, praying. God never promises that he'll answer those kinds of prayers for personal success. Nehemiah doesn't pray that he'd be the world's richest wine taster or a world-renowned wine taster. That was his job in Susan. What he prays for is success in terms of doing the will of God. God had promised to bring his people back. Nehemiah knew he had to get involved. Now he prays, God, use me in this project. To get my people back into the land. Give me success before this man. And Nehemiah springs a surprise upon us. Because if you did not know the background of this book. You simply read it and started reading. You would have no idea what man he was talking about. Because he very carefully veils the fact. That he he was an attendant. He was in the court of Artaxerxes the king. Give me success. With this man. We say what man? The next line tells us. I was the cupbearer. To the king. Nehemiah was a, a wine taster. That's what it means to be a cupbearer. Now it doesn't mean that he, he tasted in order to determine the quality of the wine. There, there were a lot of palace intrigues in Persia in those days. Someone was always trying to slip a Mickey into the king's drink. They were trying to poison him. Nehemiah's job was to taste the wine first. If he died, the king knew the cup was poisoned. 
A lot of turnover in a job like that. But you can also imagine that the king trusted him. You had to trust the, uh, your wine taster. And it also gave him a unique access and relationship to the king that no one else had. Because when the king called for a meal in the middle of the night, Artex- uh, uh, Nehemiah would show up in Artaxerxes' home. He knew his family. He had a unique relationship to the king that no one else had. And he realized why he had to get involved and why he had been given this information about Jerusalem. It was no accident. He was the key person in the kingdom at that time to get an audience with the king. But it was still frightful because these oriental monarchs were notoriously capricious. The book of Proverbs says the wrath of the king results in a sentence of death. And Nehemiah knew that if he made the king mad, his goose was cooked. He was dead. That's a problem that Esther faced, as you know. She was frightened when she went to king. It was uh, Artaxerxes' father, Xerxes, before whom she appeared. She had the same problem. She didn't know if he would extend his staff to her and, and grant leniency or whether she would die on the spot. And that's what Nehemiah had to face. So it's quite a prayer. Lord, give me success with this man. The other problem was that Artaxerxes had already made a ruling on the matter. And as you know, the law of the Medes and Persians was irrevocable. Once the king made up his mind, his mind was made up. Facts didn't make any difference because he couldn't change. You know from the book of Esther that Xerxes on that occasion made a very bad law. He knew it was, it, was, it was a bad law. He couldn't do anything about it. His hands were tied. So that's the problem that Nehemiah was facing. Though he had proximity to the king, he, he, he knew that his request might result in his death, so his own life was at stake. And secondly, he knew he was, he was facing an impossible situation because the king might turn on him. Or the, the king could not, could not change his word. But he believed the same principle we sang about earlier. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible, and he can do what no other power can do. So Nehemiah, after waiting for four months, had his chance. Now, notice at the end of his prayer, he said, Lord, grant me success today. Four months later, he had his opportunity. He prayed for four months straight, day and night, as he puts it, before God opened the door. Because delay is very often part of the process of solving problems. We like instant action. But sometimes it takes time for God to work. And all of the time Nehemiah was praying, God was working on the heart of the king. As Proverbs puts it, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now notice what happened. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, uh, formerly known as the month of Datsun, uh, which is actually the month of April, four months later, in the 20th year, we're still 445 B.C., 
In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, now we, now we know who we're talking about. The mystery is over. We know the king. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Well, there's a good reason for not being sad in the presence of the king. You didn't take your personal feelings into the court. It was very unwise to bum out the king. That's why they had court jesters there to keep them happy. And you could have all sorts of problems, but you didn't take your problems into the court. But on this occasion, Nehemiah could not stop his feelings from showing on his face. He was so distraught. For four months, nothing had happened. And I think he was probably thinking, God is not going to do anything. He'd lost hope momentarily. And his depression was showing on his face. Sometimes when things are darkest, help is right around the corner. He says, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence uh, before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah came in and his distress showed all over his face. Artaxerxes said, what's the matter, Nehemiah? Are you ill? Nehemiah said, no, everything's fine. The king said, I don't believe you. Something's wrong. This has got to be, got to be depression. You're upset about something. Tell me, what is it? It's interesting, on this occasion... Artaxerxes' wife was there. Nehemiah tells us in the next uh, paragraph, which means this was probably not a state occasion because the queen uh, did not show up for political occasions. This was a private family gathering, perhaps for an evening meal. And perhaps Nehemiah mentions the queen because she had some softening effect upon Artaxerxes, or she knew Nehemiah because of his relationship to the family he he says i i was very much afraid he knew that his next words could be his last that the king could strike out in wrath and and take his life if he said the wrong thing but i said to the king now fear is not sin Fear is a natural reaction to a threatening situation. We only sin when we let fear frustrate us and inhibit us and tyrannize us and keep us from doing what's, what's right. And on this occasion, though, though Nehemiah was, was, was scared right out of his wits, he spoke. He knew his moment had come. This was the time to speak. And so he gathered up his courage in the Lord and he spoke. And I said to the king, may the king live forever. Long live the king. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And Nehemiah is a very wise man, very politically astute. He does not make this a political matter. He makes it personal. He does not mention the city of Jerusalem because he knows that the decree has already been issued against the city. And Jerusalem was a political powder keg at this time. He knew it would be very unwise to mention the name of Jerusalem. He simply talks about his hometown, where my fathers are buried. He said, things are bad over there. I'm worried. The king said to me, what do you want? And he knew his moment had come. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Here goes nothing, Lord. Help. And he, and, he, and he spoke to the king. 
If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. I'm sure the words tumbled out of his mouth. There he'd said it. He'd served the ball right into Artaxerxes' court. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. You know how long he was gone? Twelve years. The king not only gave him a 12-year leave of absence, but he appointed him as the governor of the province of Judea so that he had authority to back up his requests. Incredible! The king had rescinded his ruling. The king made it possible for Nehemiah to do what he needed to do. Humanly speaking, he gave Nehemiah success. But Nehemiah knew that God had turned the heart of the king according to his will. And Nehemiah spent 12 years in Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall, organizing the political structure of the city, moving people back into the city. We're going to talk about these events as they unfold throughout the book of Nehemiah. For 12 years he was there. Went back to Persia. And the king was so happy with what Nehemiah had done, he appointed him for another period of time as the governor of, of the province of Judea. And, and we see, how did that happen? God did it. As a matter of fact, God had prepared for this uh, problem many years before. When the king issued his decree... He put a loophole in it. If the loophole were not there, it would be impossible for Artaxerxes to rescind his decree. But God had let him years before put a statement in, 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 the, uh, in the official decree that was sent down from, from Susa. There was a loophole there that made it possible for him to change. I don't think even Nehemiah knew. I'm sure he didn't know. Because the, the document was, was held in the royal archives in Susa. We'd have no access to it. But Ezra preserves it for us. Turn back to Ezra 4. Ezra is a, was an excellent historian. He not only tells us the facts, but he, he gives us some of his source documents. He apparently was able to find these decrees, and he publishes them in his book. Here in chapter 4, they're actually published in the language in which they were originally written, which is what historians will also often do. If they're writing a very scholarly document, they will give you the original document in the original language, and that's what he does. He, he publishes this document in Aramaic, which was the commercial language, the uh, the political language of, of uh, Babylon and Persia. Now, uh, we're told in chapter 4, verse 7, that in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabiel, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. And then the letter follows from Rechem and, and from his secretary, informing Artaxerxes of the activities of the Jews. Verse 12, The king should know that the Jews have come up to us 
who have come up to us from you, that is, they've immigrated from Persia up to Jerusalem, have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that, uh, that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and the royal revenues will suffer. So the king sends this reply, verse 18. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order, and a search was made, and I found out that this city does, indeed, have a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates. And taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. They are dangerous people. If we let them build this wall, we'll lose our position over them, our authority to tax them. So, now, issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I order. And that was Nehemiah's loophole. So the king could change his mind. We say, my, what a what a problem solver Nehemiah was. No, he was just a man who knew how to solve his problems God's way. He started out first by uh, by reminding uh, himself of by informing himself by permitting himself to be informed that there was a problem. He didn't evade the problem. He didn't avoid it. He became aware that there was a problem. He listened to people that were in proximity to the problem and to him. And he learned the nature of the problem. He informed himself. And then secondly, he got involved. He didn't blame others. He didn't pass the buck to someone else. He himself assumed responsibility for doing something about the situation. And then what he did was to take the problem to God. That's what Hezekiah had done years before when the Assyrians surrounded the city. And they sent a letter to him telling him what they were going to do to the city. Hezekiah took the letter upstairs into his room and he put it on his bed and he got down on his knees and he said, Lord, you see what they're saying. What are you going to do about that? And God said, don't worry, Hezekiah. Not one arrow will fly into the city. That's exactly what happened. Hezekiah and his people woke up the next morning and they looked over the walls. And the Assyrians were all dead, a plague had swept through the army and they were they were gone. They were no more no longer a threat. Hezekiah had taken the problem to God. So Nehemiah did. He saw the problem, realized he had to get involved, and he talked to God first about the problem. He centered on God rather than on the problem. And as a result of his prayer he realized who God was, that He was the King of the universe, the sovereign Lord of creation, that Artaxerxes was no threat in the hands of God. And then he saw himself. He began to think about what he, what part he played in creating the problem or enlarging it. And then he reminded himself of the truth that he knew about God, thanked God for his faithfulness, and he asked for success in terms of the will of God. And then when the time came, counting upon the Lord, he acted decisively. Now, have you got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Have you got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. And he can do what no other power can do. Let's pray. What a practical man 
Lord, this uh, man Nehemiah was. And uh, what a practical way in which to go about solving our problems. We're reminded again that that your word deals with just this sort of thing. The kind of down-to-earth problems that, that all of us face. And we need to know how to solve them. We need to know how to solve them in a godly way, in your way. We thank you for this instruction. We pray that we'll be men and women who are alert. Teach us to listen to those who perceive the problems. Help us to take them seriously and be willing to take whatever steps are necessary to become involved. But help us, like Nehemiah, to approach these problems on our knees. Help us to be men and women of prayer who look to you for solutions, who look to you to teach us what we need to know in order to resolve the problems that we're facing. And then make us men and women who are are courageous, who can act in boldness to do whatever needs to be done. Thank you, Lord, for this help. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.